Let's hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man hadn't worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint. How are y'all doing this morning? Good, I, I'm, I'm honestly surprised you're here. Well done. <laughs> You did it. The time change, that's a, that's a storm in and of itself. But then you throw on some snow and you say, why we even get out this morning, you know? So you, you did it. Wow. Um, as Pastor Lawrence said, uh, I am going to be preaching over the next three weeks. And so if in your mind you're thinking, okay, the next two weeks is the perfect time to, to take off, no hard feelings. Uh, I get it. Uh, I'm, I'm cool with it, so I just want you to know that. I just want you to hear that. 
this morning we're continuing in, in the Gospel of Luke, as, as you just heard it read. And, and I love both the, the simplicity and the complexity of navigating the Gospels like we are. I mean, take even today, for example. I mean, I personally find it easy to get lost in the, the greater context of the gospel narrative. I mean, obviously, we're at some point between the, the, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and his crucifixion. And there's, there's system and there's structure to how Luke has organized his gospel. But when you hear it read, you're like, where are we? Why does this matter? How does this fit in? You don't necessarily need the, the larger context to understand what these passages are saying. I mean, it's simple enough that anyone can hear and, and start to grasp and understand its meaning. But if any of you are like me, you, you might be thinking, calming storms and casting out demons. That's miraculous. Jesus did miraculous things. But I don't expect miraculous things today. So what does this have to say to me, what's the point? What, what, what can I get out? What can I take from it? But why do we think like that, if not for cultural pressure shaping our imagination? I mean, truly this line of thinking comes with, within the backdrop of secular humanism that pushes against the idea that there is a God, let alone a God who can save us. The Council for Secular Humanism says, because no transcendent power will save us, secular humanists maintain that humans must take responsibility for themselves. That's the common sense understanding of our day. This is how people think. In other words, the only way to improve our society is through our own progressive efforts, because we are all we have. And you know what? We are getting better and better every day. This is what makes the most sense. This is what works in a pluralistic society because it allows the greatest measure of personal freedom while also accounting for ongoing social responsibility. We'll do this together. This is how it works. This is our context. That's one source of our background skepticism to the miracles of Jesus. This is coming at you. This is, what you're being, this is coming at you every day. But what happens when our own progressive project isn't enough? It really is impressive how much we're capable of doing. I'm just not convinced we should be so confident that we've got this whole thing figured out on our own. Plus, if we really take God out of the equation, who are we going to hold accountable for all of our issues? Today we're going to get front, a front row seat at the, the natural human limitation. We're going to find out what we're really made of. And it's going to thrust us into a conversation, not about how people must take responsibility for themselves, but about what our options are when we run out of resources. Circumstances that open us up to asking, who is Jesus really? And does he even care? Those are faith-forming type questions. Last week, Pastor Lawrence preached on the, the parable of the sower, and, and Jesus' explanation of the parable ends by saying, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. 
So there's a kind of perseverance involved in following Jesus. Were you expecting that? Are you ready for that? At this point, Luke wants us to turn our attention to the authority and identity of Jesus. So he gives us several miraculous accounts, one after another. And verse 22 starts with Jesus, Jesus telling his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. So far, sounds like a pretty normal day. It's so casual that Jesus even goes down for a nap. He's like, I'm going to sleep here. But then in the midst of the ordinary, verse 23 says, a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. What's a squall, right? Like I've heard of children squalling and I know that that's not good. So what's that look like in a storm-like fashion? I mean, literally, the, the, the Greek word here describes it as hurricane-like wind. There's, hurricane, there's a hurricane-like wind that's come upon this boat. In other words, what is happening on this boat is not some mild disturbance. These, are, these disciples have been immediately thrust into a fight for their lives. I mean, you've got to understand, these, these are skilled fishermen and sailors. If you were in this kind of situation, these are the kind of people you want with you. And they are, to- they are totally in their wheelhouse. And they're terrified. What they are saying in effect is, we're going to die. They felt it. They're in it. Can-, can-, can you visualize this moment? There's a famous Rembrandt painting from 1633 called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. I want you to look at this. I know it's kind of small, but I want you to look at it. What do you see? It's trying to depict this scene. What do you see? What what grabs your attention? Where do your eyes go to? I've been looking at this painting all week and thinking about this story all week. And the first thing I see, the first thing I go to is the guy at the very top of the boat on the left. He actually looks like he's, he's no, he knows what he's doing. He's, he's doing work. But he also looks completely unstable, as if he could be catapulted off to this boat at any moment. And then, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a guy who's holding on to the mast. He's falling backward. He's holding on. He's not contributing anything to this situation. <laughs> I mean, all he can do is, is hold on. He's holding on for his life. And then my mind starts to think, well, where's Jesus? Where's he in this picture? And surprisingly, he's, he's toward the bottom of the boat. He's in the dark. He's got a couple of disciples angrily grabbing at him. Let's zoom in here. And you see a, a, a little bit closer the, the, all, all these different Disciples, where do you think the best seat on the boat is? Who among them looks like they're most in control? Which skilled sailor aboard gives you the most assurance? We're going to be all right. The conditions have advanced beyond their ability. 
That's actually part of the point of the painting, to demonstrate the power of nature and human helplessness. Human skill and expertise is left fragile and completely exposed by what we could boil down to as sheer bad luck. I mean, how is that fair? After all of their training, all of their life experiences, by chance they get caught in a storm like this, and it's as if it's all for naught. Can you sense their helplessness? I mean, just, just put yourself in their shoes. Can't, can't you feel it? Can't you sense what they might be experiencing here? What, you would say this too. Master, we're perishing. Don't you care? Don't you see that we're dying? In fact, many believe that one of the fascinating things about this painting is that Rembrandt actually painted himself into the scene. If you, if you zoom in here, if you count the people on the boat, you'll actually count 13 disciples. That Rembrandt is the one who's holding on to the rigging with one hand and his, and his hat with his other. People believe that's, that's Rembrandt putting himself into this moment. And as if he's inviting you to do the same. To ask yourself, don't you see your helplessness? Don't you see how little control you have? In essence, we, we could conclude at some point life will devastate you. It will overwhelm you. You've heard it said that God will never give you more than you can handle. But I tell you, when suffering comes, you, you will ask, God, don't you care? You'll be utterly overwhelmed. And even on the brink of despair, surrounded by conditions of hopelessness and helplessness, God can say, quiet, be still. You will be awakened to your own need and you will see just how far God is willing to go in pursuit of those who are perishing. Amen. Now at this point, after the squall has ceased, Jesus has done it. He's calmed the storm. Jesus turns to his disciples and at this point you, you would think maybe he's going to assess the group's morale. How's everybody doing? Are you all right? No. Instead he asks, Where's your faith? And I wonder how you read that question, how you hear that. Where's your faith? What's his tone? Is he condemning them? Or is he fathering them? Where's your faith? Martin Lloyd-Jones and Tim Keller both make the point that Jesus isn't saying the disciples are lacking faith. He's not even necessarily pointing out the weakness of their faith, but that, that faith is an immense resource to them. So why aren't you using it here? Why haven't you pulled it out? Some suggest that when Christians talk about faith, what we really mean is blind trust. And this kind of blind trust is just automatic. It'll, it'll just kick into gear. Faith puts you on autopilot to navigate the gamut of human experience. But Jesus is saying faith is not like that. Faith is something that you must put into practice. Jesus is with them. Nobody who dwells in the presence of God is without faith. Nobody who, who dwells in the presence of God is without faith. But this is a moment where they're invited to walk in faith. To let their confidence in Christ grow. So why aren't you? Have you ever done pull-ups? Have you tried to do pull-ups? If you've ever done a pull-up, if you've, if you've never done a pull-up before, during your first attempt, 
you will find yourself asking, do I not have the muscles in my body to do this? Because my head knows what I want to do, but nothing else seems to be responding. And now I'm just awkwardly hanging here, telling myself to do something that is not happening. And then when you do them, when you actually do one, you're like, whoa, I can do it. You pull up and you go back down. And you're like, I'm done. <laughs> and then later, you start to feel pain in parts of your body that you did not know existed. <laughs> wow, I didn't know I could feel pain there. But the muscles, they're there. You have what you need. But you have to use them. You have to practice it. Faith can be like that. It's there. It needs to be applied. It needs to be worked out. What you know needs to be put into action. Why? Where is your faith? Jesus is saying, where's your faith? It may be weak, but it's there. Why don't you work it out? Now, again, what I love most about this picture, going back to the painting again, what I love most about this picture is that it makes the obvious that much more clear. In the miracle of the coming of the storm, it's, it's easy to see. It's right there. You see it. But in our lives, it feels less clear, even though it's no less true. And it, that's that Jesus is in the boat. We can't escape that fact. Jesus is in the boat. In other words, our fates are linked. What happens to me is happening to him. And what happens to him will happen for me. We are in the boat together. And everyone knows that the captain goes down with the ship. And this ship is not going down. Amen. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't you know that we're in the same boat? Do you remember where we're headed? Do you know what we're doing? Do you think that those who ride with Jesus will perish? They don't, my friends. And you know what? Our vantage point is even clearer on this than the disciples. You see, faith is not just about knowing all the things. You can have a solid knowledge about Jesus Christ and a solid grasp of theological arguments and not have real faith. Let me tell you, there are Bible scholars at UNC and Duke right now who are more acquainted with biblical arguments than you are. Doesn't mean they have more faith than you. But for the Christian, do you really believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the power of God to save? Do you believe that Jesus has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father? Have you explored these truths for yourself? Don't just take what other people say. Actually explore it. Actually seek to understand it. And then to walk in it. Do you believe that even today he is advocating for you? Do you know that you are his prize? His crowning glory. Do you know that? Are you walking in that? Jesus is saying, where's your faith? Those who've encountered the risen Jesus in their lives, you come to a deeper faith through the ongoing communion you share with him. This is a lifelong pursuit. I am more convinced of the risen Jesus today than when I first believed 18 years ago. The truth about Jesus hasn't changed, but my faith in him has. It's deepened. Because I've come to realize that he is riding in the boat with me. And he's the one who invited me to ride in the first place. Amen. And with that comes experience and understanding. 
and perseverance. We're going to get there. So the Christian who understands these things, who learns to apply these things, has real hope. Not based on the quality of your faith, but on the person of Jesus on what he is able to do. How do you grow a deeper trust in the person of Jesus? You commune with him. You do life with him. You know him. My five-year-old daughter will sometimes ask me, when can I see Jesus? Where, where can I see Jesus? I want to give him a hug. And it's really sweet. And what I often tell her is God intends for his presence to be made known through his people. That when people live like Jesus, others will encounter the face of God. That's something we learn to do both personally and communally. The more you encounter Jesus, the more you'll be exposed to the power of God. The more you know it's him who keeps you. And that will deepen your faith. A second thing I want to point out from this text. I'm going to warn you. It will make you uncomfortable. And it will also comfort you. It will make you uncomfortable because at the, at, at, it's at the heart of so many of our questions. And it's why the disciples ask, Jesus, don't you care? But it will also comfort you. Because in asking the question, you'll see what God can do. So what is it? And that's that Jesus was asleep. That sometimes in the midst of trial, God appears to be asleep. He lets the storm come. He lets us go through it. Why does he do that? And this taps into something that appears a lot in the biblical story. I mean, being in the, the Bible reading plan early on, I noticed that the, the psalmist seemed to ask God to arise or to awake a lot. Like a lot. I mean, the psalmist says at the end of Psalm 44, Awake! Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Doesn't this sound like the state of the disciples? God, where are you? Have you ever asked that question? If you haven't, you probably will. Or maybe you would describe your faith as rattled. But you're not alone. Many before you have asked this question. And many after you will ask this question. We see it echo from the biblical story. Every generation must rediscover the faith of old. And we do that by encountering the unchanging God. And God is pleased to grant such faith because to each generation, he offers us himself. Deepening faith in the power of God is evidence of the ongoing presence of God in our midst. Deepening faith in the power of God is evidence of the ongoing presence of God in our midst. The God of ages will arise. He's gonna get up. Don't you get it? Don't you see the pattern at play here? Do you see what he's preparing us for? It's so essential to the Christian faith that the point of these miracles is not simply the miracle itself. It's not to, to, to show the miraculous nature of Jesus, though it does. It's to show the authority of God 
the identity of Christ. It's to point us to the matchless power of Jesus. God will take the place of those who are perishing, but he will overcome. He may look asleep, and in fact, we will think he looks asleep. We will think he looks down, but he will rise up, and you will be raised with him. Do you see what he's doing? Now, this passage ends with the disciples marveling and fearing, asking themselves, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who is this? A question that's answered in the next story by the demoniac. Verses 26 and 27 continue. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Now, I'm not going to show you a picture of this story, okay? You're welcome, all right? And when, Jesus, when he saw Jesus, when the demoniac saw Jesus, he shouted, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Who is this? Jesus, son of the most high God. The condition Jesus finds this man in gives us a window into the disruption and despair this man and his town have experienced due to the demonic forces at work. Here we have a man who's experiencing something much more than, than mental illness. People want to explain this. This is much more than mental illness. He, he is overcome by great evil. Many demons have possessed him. And once again, we see that people are, are all out of answers. What do we do? Verse 29 says, Many times the impure spirits had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. In other words, the town had expended every resource at their disposal and still didn't know what to do. What would you do with him? I'd probably do whatever I could to not have to think about it. I don't know. You see, this man is breaking out of chains and bursting past guards. Who wants to watch him to make sure that he does no harm to others? What kind of care can we even provide? What else can we do? We, we, we've tried everything. But Jesus comes and he confronts him head on. In fact, this, this seems to be the only thing that Jesus does while he's there. He asks him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Now, a legion was a military term meaning an army unit of 6,000. And if anyone's interested, on our most recent episode of our church's podcast, we actually talked about numbers in the Bible and how to interpret them. I know, it seems like a really riveting title. Um, but this is a case in point. Legion, six, is, are, there, are there literally 6,000 demons in this man? I don't think so. And so if you're interested, go, go listen to that podcast. Go, go listen to how the Bible thinks about and talks and uses numbers to, to convey meanings. But the larger point, I think that there's probably at least multiple demons. And even that, we're like, there's demons? There's probably multiple. But the larger point is to demonstrate that the strength of the demonic power at play and the helplessness of this community to do anything about it. But then notice the contrast. The power of the demonic forces that has troubled these people shrivels and grovels at the feet of Jesus. 
The demonic powers have left this man exposed, ostracized, and deranged. It's led to physical, spiritual, and emotional isolation. The work of Satan brings desolation and wilderness into people's lives. He intends to totally devastate them. When God desires to bring life and abundance. In other words, this man is not, a, he's not someone you think is on the brink of following Jesus. I'll tell you that. When you look at his life, there's no indication that he's the fourth soil from the parable of the sower. But Jesus comes and binds up what has no place in his kingdom in order to take back what is rightfully his. And so Legion immediately recognizes the authority of Jesus. To the disciples, Jesus is firm but compassionate. But to the demons, he says, you know who I am. You know who I am. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is confronted about casting out demons, he responds by saying, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Just think about that. Where the Spirit of God has cast out demons, the kingdom of God is advancing. The territory of Jesus' rule and reign has increased. That's what's happening here. The kingdom of God is advancing. He goes on. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I bind up the strong man. I cast out demons and reclaim what is mine. It's no coincidence then that it's the legion of demons and not the disciples from the previous account who are expelled to drown in the lake. Verse 35 turns our attention to the transformational power of God. It says, when the people came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The demon-possessed man had been cured, and it terrified them. On the one hand, the power of Jesus had come at great economic cost to them. But Luke seems to point to the people's fear of Jesus. His power is risky to them. They can't control it. They don't know what he's going to do. So they send him away. Which leaves us with some important questions. Are we willing to surrender to the power of Jesus? Or will we find Jesus' authority too costly for us and send him away? He seems to offer us this choice. His power is undeniable. You don't get Christ apart from his power. And you don't get to tell him how to use it. Plenty of people only want Jesus to co-sign on things they have no business doing. They don't really want Jesus. They don't really want freedom. They just want freedom to use his power. And they will get neither. But the freeing power of God in our lives entices us to draw near to his presence. That's what this man did. As Jesus was leaving, he begged to go with him. He wanted life with Jesus more than anything. He desired to continue in the presence of God. But Jesus' response shows you that to really come to Jesus means surrendering to his authority. It doesn't mean doing whatever you want, but learning to come under his plans for your life. 
It's interesting to see that from one vantage point, power strikes fear in us. Power strikes fear in us. And we're not really sure what to do with it. So we, we try to push it out to get away from it. We've seen power wielded and abused for great evil. So we're not sure that power has any redemptive value. But from another vantage point, this man has encountered the power of God used to display his enduring goodness. And the goodness of God creates in you a desire for more. He's like, there's nothing I could want more than to experience the power of God because I've seen his goodness. John Calvin observes from this passage, the Gerasenes cannot endure to have Christ among them. But he who has been delivered from the devil is desirous to leave his own country and follow him. Hence we learn how wide is the difference between the knowledge of the goodness and the knowledge of the power of God. Power strikes men with terror, makes them fly from the presence of God, and drives them to a distance from him. But goodness draws them gently and makes them feel that nothing is more desirable than to be united to God. To experience the goodness of God. Nothing is more desirable than to be united to God. You see, this man experienced the goodness of God and it drew him in. God's goodness compelled him to trust the power of God and to surrender. And so he went out to tell others how much Jesus had done for him. To some, Jesus calls back into the boat. To others, he sends back out into the town. In my own life, I'm still learning how to move forward in the wake of God's no's, as I also surrender and gear up for his yeses. My family's in that right now. I feel that even right now. What about for you? Have you encountered the goodness of God in your life? Has Jesus become a welcome presence among you? What has he freed you to do for his sake? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you that you are a God of miracles. God, you are a God who, 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 who is showing your power and authority even today. God, that you're using, we, it, it, we're seeing how, how your goodness is advancing, how your kingdom is advancing through your people, through the work that you're still actively doing in this world. God, teach us how to, to, to pull out our faith, to put it into practice, to mature, to, to ride out the storms and the waves knowing, God, that you are with us. God, teach us to, to, to surrender to you, to lay down our lives for your sake, to do the things that you've called us to do, even when it costs us much, because we are looking ahead to the great reward. We are living as ones who have great hope, and we trust you, God. May we trust you more. Deepen us. Deepen our faith in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.